For weeks, federal officials have been besieged by questions, why don't we have more monkeypox vaccines? This is health policy reporter Dan Diamond. He has been reporting on the Biden administration's response to the monkeypox outbreak and the fact that there is an acute shortage of vaccines. And this week, Dan reported a big scoop about this behind-the-scenes debacle over how the government should use the monkeypox vaccines that they do have. So in early August, they thought they'd come up with a solution. They would take the vaccine doses that we had and start cutting them into fifths, essentially multiplying the number of shots by five. Just one problem, they didn't get the support from the vaccine maker, the only FDA-approved vaccine, in fact, for monkeypox. So after this announcement was made, the CEO of the company that makes this vaccine calls up an administration official and is like, wait, what? You're going to do what with our vaccine? The CEO said that this was a breach of contract. The vaccine had not been approved to work divided up into fifths. And he threatened to cancel any future orders of vaccines for the U.S. That caused a ripple effect across the federal government. Real fear that our entire strategy to fight monkeypox was now in jeopardy. And Dan says that this one story tells us a lot about how decisions are being made within the administration on monkeypox. It says to me that there have been best intentions, but struggling execution. There's a world where the vaccine maker gets on board with this approach, where local city officials say, okay, we're, we're game for trying this idea of splitting up the doses. But the speed in which it happened and the lack of everyone being on the same page, that says to me that three months into the monkeypox response, we're still seeing too many problems that come from too much disorganization. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, August 18th. Today, we're talking with Dan about the mistakes the Biden administration has made with monkeypox. Then, later in the show, we'll hear about a different problem in our healthcare system. How Roe being overturned is affecting access to medications for arthritis, ulcers, and even cancer. So as it stands right now, how much has monkeypox spread here in the U.S.? How many cases um, do we know of so far? As of Thursday, there are about 13,500 cases of monkeypox in the United States. The total number has been growing by a couple hundred cases every day. Officials are hoping that we're reaching the peak of the outbreak. So, Dan, it has been 100 days since we first saw monkeypox appear in Europe, and now we have a significant number of cases in the U.S. You and other reporters of The Post have been reporting on what has been happening behind the scenes in the government since all of this began. And can you just talk through a little bit of what you were trying to find out with this reporting and, and why you felt it was important to look further into how the U.S. government is handling this? I've been thinking about it as an accountability reporter around two questions. First, how did this happen? How did we get to a moment two years plus after COVID where another outbreak is spreading across the United States? Shouldn't we know better about how to deploy the tools that we have? And in this case, we had quite a few to stop monkeypox from spreading. And the second question has been, 
is this all going to be too late? Hmm. Is this virus that had never been entrenched in the United States, is it on the verge of becoming permanent here too, as it has been abroad? So those have been the questions animating all of our coverage. And I think looking at how decisions were approached, who was making them, what their considerations were, there have been three or four major turning points, I think, Martine, in this response. Yeah, well, start to talk through what you found out from all the people you interviewed and and about these turning points where things could have gone differently. I think an early turning point was the decision to limit testing. In the response in May into June, the decision was made that if folks wanted to get a monkeypox test, a doctor would have to get sign-off from an epidemiologist, local epidemiologist, state epidemiologist. But you can imagine, Martine, there are patients who might be in a doctor's office who want to get that test right away. The doctor wants to give them that test, but now has to track down an epidemiologist. might take hours and hours, according to some of the doctors I talked to back then. And then once that test was run, it had to go through the state public health lab, Mm -hmm. which might need several days. This is not going down to your local pharmacy and, and getting tested there or going to a laboratory to get your your test done. This is relying on these big public health labs that are set up around the country. Dan, as you're as you're saying this, I just have to say, I mean, there it feels like there is so much deja vu here of early in the coronavirus pandemic and talk about these big labs that can't handle the testing that needs to happen to be able to catch this thing before it spreads more widely. And it's just very interesting that it's the same problem over again with a different virus. It is totally deja vu. It's the exact same thing. We counted on these big public health labs at the beginning of COVID. It took too long to get the diagnostic companies like Quest Diagnostics, LabCorp in the game for COVID. This time, White House officials said, well, we moved quickly. We we had testing working at the beginning, unlike COVID, which is true. But it still was probably until early July when these lab companies were really coming online with thousands of additional locations. And at that point, monkeypox had been spreading for probably 45 days in the United States. It was, again, administration officials will privately admit, later than it could have been to help detect where these infection clusters were. So I think that was one key decision point that folks are lamenting today. Yeah. A second turning point was around ordering more vaccines. Now, I've spoken with federal officials about this. I spoke to Dawn O'Connell, the official who's in charge of our national stockpile. She says they moved incredibly quickly. The day or two after the first case was detected in the United States, they made a decision to order tens of thousands of additional vaccines. Within another 10 days, they ordered tens of thousands of more vaccines. So they did move rather quickly, given the small number of doses. There was some debate, too, Martine, about whether the United States could have moved even faster and said to the manufacturer, Bavaria Nordic, hey, we've got millions of doses of potential vaccine, kind of raw material. Imagine that you want to bake a cake and you've got all the flour and all the other ingredients in the closet. The United States could have said to Bavaria Nordic, start making those vaccines now, start turning that raw material that we own into shots. But they didn't move immediately on that. And by later July into August, that's when you get the city health officials, the activists, the patients saying, why didn't we do that a few months ago so we'd have more doses right now? So, Dan, I know that you all spoke with a man named Gerald Febles, who has had some of these experiences firsthand. Can you talk a little bit about what he experienced? 
So Gerald was one of a number of men we talked to from New York, gay and bisexual, who unfortunately reported pretty similar dispiriting experiences of either trying to get prompt treatment and care and being turned away or getting misinformation when they went to get that care. They had no specific treatment for what is currently on my body. They could just give me something that would systemically help me, like Benadryl or Motrin to kind of take away the itching and the overall body pain. And I went home that day, confirmed that I have monkeypox with no treatment. They said it should go away on its own and I shall be fine. That's not true. There is a treatment called T-pox. It was approved to fight smallpox, which is a related virus, much more severe than monkeypox. It has been effective, though, against monkeypox, and doctors can get it. They can prescribe it. The challenge has been, Martine, that to get it for some weeks, you had to fill out all this paperwork. It was hours and hours of paperwork. I talked to one doctor in New York who said he could basically only do all the work to prescribe T-pox to maybe two people all day if that was all he was doing. Um, you're, you're kind of running this mini clinical trial. Over the past few weeks, federal officials have made it easier and easier to access TPOX, but it's still pretty difficult. White House officials on Thursday said that they were moving to make TPOX even more available. For patients who have gotten it, it has helped address their lesions pretty quickly. It's helped address their pain. The lesions can dry up and scab faster. So you might be taking what could be a, a course of infection that lasts days or, or into weeks and with TPOX speeding up uh, your body's recovery. I'm curious, what has the White House and other parts of the government said in response to some of your reporting and these scenarios where it seems like there were wrong turns or things didn't happen as quickly as they should have and people were not able to get vaccinated or get treatment? They have admitted in a number of private conversations that there have been mistakes made that the pace of the response could have been faster, that some of these decisions, like on testing or making treatments more available, should have been done earlier. And there has been tension between the federal health department and the White House, sort of a parallel of what we saw during COVID, um, suggesting to me that as much as Trump, President Trump, was blamed for his mishandling of COVID, and Lord knows he made many, many mistakes and shared a lot of misinformation, there are some fundamental challenges in responding to a public health crisis. And the agencies can be bureaucratic in the middle of an evolving situation. And it's the White House that ends up prodding them along, but trying to figure out uh, how much pushing they can do without it becoming outright meddling. In this case, I, I think White House officials have tried to point to their new approach this month. They've installed a White House coordinator for monkeypox, Bob Fenton. They've brought over a deputy coordinator from the CDC, Dimitri Daskalakis. He's a former New York City health official and uh, an out gay man. So he's been a major messenger to the gay community on behalf of the White House, especially these past few weeks. The, the White House is arguing essentially that their new structure, their new plans are helping get this outbreak under control. I guess we will have to wait and see if that's actually true. Well, one other part of your reporting that I thought was really interesting and frankly, just very relatable was also this idea of burnout and that the people who are tasked with responding to this are, in many cases, the people who were tasked with responding to coronavirus over the past 
two and a half years and that they're just burnt out and that that's part of the problem, too, of of how difficult it is to keep kind of running on all cylinders in response to these kinds of public health emergencies. You know, Martine, I was looking at the website for the New York State Department of Health, and there were a couple different tabs. One was COVID. One was monkeypox. Another was polio, because they're dealing with a polio uh, potential outbreak in New York, too. I think what this speaks to is that the same folks who are being pressed into service to fight these outbreaks are being pulled in increasingly different directions. And many folks who were on the front lines have left. They turned over after the Omicron outbreak. They, they stuck it out through the rough COVID winter that we had and, and moved on. There has been some funding that has been cut back or is still stalled in Congress that could help bolster the public health infrastructure. So it's a vulnerable moment for the U.S. public health system. And I think monkeypox is exposing how many holes are left after COVID. Dan Diamond is a health policy reporter for The Post. Fennett Nierpil and Lena Sun also contributed reporting. This story was produced by Jordan Marie Smith. After the break, we hear about a surprising consequence of overturning Roe v. Wade. People who are struggling to get care for diseases that are totally unrelated to pregnancy. We'll be right back. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And now, one more thing about something that's happened since the Supreme Court's decision to strike down Roe v. Wade. In the immediate aftermath of the Supreme Court's decision, people started reporting on social media that they were experiencing some unintended consequences. Katie Shepard writes about health and science for The Post. One of the main claims that people were making was that they were struggling to get access to medicine that treats conditions like rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, even cancer treatment drugs, because those drugs can also be used to induce abortions. Many people reported having trouble specifically getting a drug called methotrexate, which is considered the gold standard treatment for a lot of autoimmune conditions. So these are people who are dealing in their day-to-day life with chronic pain conditions that can be really debilitating. And this drug which also happens to be used to terminate ectopic pregnancies and has in the past been used to uh, induce elective abortions, is also the best drug in many cases for treating these chronic pain conditions. Anti-abortion advocates say that these laws should not prevent people from getting the treatment they need. 
But in states where abortion is now restricted or outlawed, doctors and pharmacists are in a bind. They suddenly have to be extra careful with whether and when they prescribe these drugs. If they were to give them to a patient who became pregnant while taking them, they could be held criminally liable and lose their license, even if they didn't prescribe them to induce an abortion. Well, my name is Becky Hubbard. I'm from Tri-Cities, Tennessee. We're right on the edge of Northeast Tennessee, Southwest Virginia. One of the patients I talked to was a woman in Tennessee named Becky Hubbard who has been taking methotrexate for eight years to control her rheumatoid arthritis. I had never had a problem getting methotrexate. Nobody had ever even asked me if I was on birth control for it up until this. And I've been on it for eight years. She's in her mid-40s, so her risk of an unintended pregnancy was lower, but she also has some fertility issues that she has been dealing with for her entire life. So when she was taking this medication, she decided, along with her doctor, that her risk for an unintended pregnancy was very low. And she had taken birth control in the past and had some pretty serious side effects from it that she didn't want to endure while she was also dealing with the really painful symptoms of rheumatoid arthritis. My hormones are so messed up from the PCOS anyway, and a lot of people, that straightens them out. Mine, it sent haywire. Like, my body was just completely different. Becky had switched doctors in the months prior to the Supreme Court's decision, and her new rheumatologist was putting her on the injection form of methotrexate rather than the pills because he thought that that might work a little bit better and help improve her symptoms and stop the disease from progressing. And she was scheduled to start those injections on the Monday after the Supreme Court's decision. But then her doctor gave her a call that morning to ask whether she was on birth control or had had a hysterectomy in the past. I told him that I had been married for 17 years, never been on birth control, and I had one child that was adopted. I don't know how much more proof they need. And because she hadn't, they delayed putting her on the injection form of methotrexate, and she has now been without the drug for several months. The joint stiffness and pain... And some of the swelling, too, get really bad. They're really bad right now because I haven't had it. Now it's getting worse. I mean, that I'm getting unsteady because of the swelling stuff. I fell down the steps two days ago, and I know it's because I don't have the treatment that I need to keep myself, you know. I mean, it just kind of all snowballs. Becky has talked through her options with her primary care physician, and they've gone over the option of taking birth control pills, of getting an IUD, or potentially having a tubal ligation, which is surgical sterilization. And she told me that she feels most comfortable with getting the surgical option just because of the symptoms that she's had in the past with birth control and her concerns that adding something new to her body might cause some of her other health conditions to get worse. It scares me to death. <laughs> Last time I went into surgery, they had a hard time getting me off the vent, getting me out of there because of some trouble that I've got with my lungs. I mean, RA is just the tip of the iceberg where my health stuff is concerned. So, I mean, I'm sure I'll be fine, but it still scares me. The last time I had surgery didn't go well, and I sure don't want to have surgery if I don't have to with all the other stuff I have going on. You know, I don't have to do this. Uh, but now, if I want to get treated for this, I have to do this. 
Several of the patients that I talked to for this story felt that they have to jump through new hoops now that the Supreme Court has struck down Roe in order to access drugs that they've been taking for some time. And this can include things like having to newly go on birth control, having to take pregnancy tests regularly in order to continue staying on the drugs. And people are concerned that if they don't meet these new requirements or if they run into a situation where a doctor or a pharmacist is confused about whether they can get the drug, that they might suddenly be cut off from these medicines. And in many cases, the stakes are are high for these patients who are managing chronic pain conditions where going without a dose of their medicine for a week can leave them in bed writhing in pain. Katie Shepard is a health reporter for The Post. This story was produced by Renny Svarnovsky, who also mixed the show. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was edited by Maggie Penman with help from Eliza Dennis. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening.